Lord, we thank you for your unfailing nature. You are a faithful, always faithful God. Lord, you never fail to keep your promises. You never fail to deliver your people. You never fail to be who you are and have always been holy, gracious, faithful, true. And so, Lord, we pray that on this day we would see your unfailing love poured out on us. And not only us, God, we pray for the other churches of this community gathered just like we are in the various places, Lord. We pray that you would fill your people with the power of your spirit. Lord, to be glorifying to you. Lord, I pray for Pastor Stephen Uke and the people of God at Park Avenue Baptist in Titusville. I pray they would experience a renewal of your spirit, a great awakening, a revival, Father, that only you could bring among them today. And Lord, as they gather and they scatter, may they do so in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray the same for us. Father, as I saw this morning in the life of Samson, God, that he was this mighty, strong man defying all odds. It was clear that the power of Samson really wasn't the length of his hair. It was the spirit of the Lord that rushed upon him. And Father, I'm asking you, would the spirit of the Lord rush upon us today? Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Lord, I pray that you would change us and transform us. Fill us with receptive hearts to hear your word and respond in humble faith and obedience to the message of Jesus Christ. Father, pour out your spirit on us because the work that needs to be done today is a work that no one can do but you, Lord. So work by your spirit's power through the teaching and hearing and believing of your holy word the Bible. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to our next passage of study in the book of Mark, Mark chapter six. We're going to continue, of course, this verse by verse study of the gospel of Mark. And um, without any introduction, really, I'm just wanting to jump right into the next passage of scripture. Last week, we left off in Mark chapter six, verse 13. So where do you think we're going to pick up this morning? Verse 14, right? Mark chapter six. I'm going to start reading in verse 14. I will read through verse 29. Picking up where we left off, says this, King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because she'd mar- he'd married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, bro. And Her- Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John. Now, other gospel accounts tell us that Herod also feared the people. And so he's a guy who has a lot of fear of man that holds him back. But reading on, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet heard him gladly. 
But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And now you've had your encouraging story for the week. And I think we can just go. It teaches itself pretty much. Here we are in one of those passages of scripture that veggie tales will never make into a cartoon. Bob the tomato loses his head. If you've, been, if you've been tracking in our study with the gospel of Mark, you know that what Jesus has been doing is traveling around this region of Israel, training his 12 disciples whom he's called apostles, and then sending them out on a mission to make him and his kingdom and his message known. And that's what we saw last week, was that sending out on a mission to make the message of Jesus known. And immediately here in verse 14, we pick right up with this story about John the Baptist being beheaded, and it feels like it comes out of left field. And so I first want to just show you a little bit of why it is that Mark is telling us this story about John's death. I mean, why would he tell us, and why would he tell us here in this section that feels so out of place? Well, several reasons. Let me give you one. This story explains What happened to John the Baptist? The last thing that Mark told us about John was back in Mark chapter 1. The gospel of Mark actually starts with the ministry of John the Baptist. And he is this wild prophet who comes out and boldly proclaims the message, preparing the way for Jesus. And then the very last thing Mark tells us in chapter 1 about Mark is that he was arrested And then it sort of shifts gears in showing us that Jesus picked up essentially where Mark or where John left off, preaching about the gospel of the kingdom and calling people to repent. And that's just where it ended with John in Mark chapter 1. So for the better part of six chapters, Mark's audience has sort of been on this cliffhanger wondering whatever happened to John. Some of you get frustrated when I do that in my stories. I'll just move right along. You're like, whatever happened to so-and-so? Well, that's what's happening in Mark's gospel. The, the, the audience is, he has heard the story. John got arrested. Well, what happened to John? And our text closes the loop on John's arrest. The second thing the story does is it foreshadows the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. You you see it really clearly here. John is killed for preaching the truth about Jesus and calling people to repent. And that's not unique to John. You see in a few short years, Jesus himself 
is going to be standing before the same King Herod and he will be put to death like John. And in the years following that, nearly every one of the apostles, all but one, will be killed for preaching the message of Jesus and calling people to repent. So in that way, the story of John the Baptist's death foreshadows what will happen to Jesus and the apostles on the rest of their mission. And the third thing this story does is it illustrates the experience that the apostles had while they were on their mission. Here's what I mean. Last week, right before our text for this morning in verses 6 through 13, Jesus sent his disciples out on a mission to tell the people of Israel a message. Now, what specifically did Mark say was their message? Well, verse 12 tells us it was a message to repent, a message of repentance. That word repent means to change one's mind. And last week I shared that the Bible says there are at least three things every person needs to change their mind about in order to be a true follower of Jesus. You have to change your mind about your sin, change your mind about yourself, change your mind about our Savior Jesus. We'll actually come back to that at the end of this message. And so the message of Jesus is a call for people everywhere to repent. Everywhere and everyone, the call is to repent from the least to the greatest. And our story is an illustration of that very point. John the Baptist goes out and he calls some of the most powerful people in his world to repent, the king and the king's wife. But not only does this story illustrate the fact that Jesus sends his apostles out on a mission to preach repentance, it actually illustrates another dynamic connected with that. And it's this, that on that mission, proclaiming repentance, a large number of people will reject that message. So matter of fact, that's the last thing that Jesus told the disciples before they left on their mission. Mark chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, right before our text, listen to what Jesus says. If any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Do you see that there? Before Jesus sends the disciples out, he tells them there are going to be people who will not listen to the message of repentance. They will reject it, Jesus says. He says later on in another book of the Bible that wide is the way, broad is the way that leads to destruction and many will go down that road. Many will reject the message of Jesus and repentance. And then Mark shows us this story, the death of John the Baptist. It powerfully illustrates just how opposed people in our world are going to be to the message of repentance. How How far are people willing to go to oppose this message of repentance? Well, John loses his head. He's put to death. Because people refuse to repent. Those people loved their sin. They loved themselves in a way that kept them from embracing Jesus as Lord. So when you put all of that together, what you actually get is our big idea for this passage this morning. Here's the big idea for today. The message of repentance is rejected by those who love sin 
and self more than the Savior. The message of repentance is rejected by those who love sin and self more than the Savior. Guys, that's the most vivid thing we see in this sober story about John the Baptist. We see the hard-hearted, unrepentant rejection of Jesus by people who love their sin and they love themselves in a way that keep them from turning to Jesus Christ in humble faith. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to, I pray, with humble and sober hearts, walk back through this text and see how the Bible is giving us insight into human nature into our own hearts at times, into what it looks like to be unrepentant, to be unrepentant in a way that you reject the message of repentance and in so doing, turn your back on Jesus and his work in your life. So let's walk through our big idea by going through this text a little bit at a time. The very first thing we see is this, the message of repentance is rejected. Look at verse 14. It says, King Herod heard of it, For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. And others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Stop right there. Remember, the disciples have just been sent out. They're going around two by two throughout the nation of Israel telling people that Jesus is the king of God's kingdom and calling them to repent, to have a change of mind. You're not your own king. Those other earthly rulers aren't your king. Jesus is your king. Change your mind. Turn to Jesus. And verse 14 says, that message had made its all the way up to a political leader in Israel named King Herod. So that king hears that message and he has a decision to make. Like all of us have a decision to make about Jesus. He is either going to believe that Jesus is the one true king and then bow before him in humility, or he's going to reject Jesus as king. And what does he do? He rejects Jesus. As a matter of fact, Herod thinks that Jesus is actually John the Baptist raised from the dead. And this is a tangent that I really wanted to go down this morning and I don't have time but I do have 30 seconds. I can't spend a lot of time, but I want you to know, I feel like it's amazing to see what people are willing to believe to keep themselves from believing in Jesus. Herod's heart was so hardened by sin, he's literally willing to believe that a beheaded man could come back to life rather than turning from his sin and trusting in Jesus. Guys, it takes a lot of faith not to believe in Jesus. But I digress. This isn't the first time Herod's rejected Jesus, though. It's not the first time that he's refused to repent. And that's why Mark continues on into this story that gives us insight into Herod's actual heart and what's going on and inside of this unrepentant man. Herod's first refusal wasn't when he heard the message that was being made known by the disciples. It was while John the Baptist was still alive. And that's sort of the flashback that Mark gives us. Look at verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he'd married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Duh. 
And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John. Knowing he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed because he didn't want to give up his sin. He didn't want to bow before Jesus, but he wanted to hear a little bit more of what John had to say. Yet he heard him gladly. Let me, let me just give you a little bit of background on Herod. If you're familiar with the Bible, you've heard the name Herod before. There are several different people in the Bible who have the name Herod. For instance, Herod the, the Great was the one ruling in Israel at the time that Jesus was born. You might remember in Matthew chapter 2, Herod the Great has the babies two years old and under put to death around the city of, of Bethlehem. Well, he had sons and some of them had the name Herod too. And the Herod in our text is the son of Herod the the great. His name was Herod Antipas. And history tells us this guy was a wicked, wicked, immoral man. He he had been married to an Arabian princess. And one day Herod and his Arabian princess bride decide to take a trip to visit his half brother, a guy named Philip. Well, while he's visiting Philip, Herod's there and he falls in love with Philip's wife, Herodias. And while he's there in love with Herodias on this visit with family, he convinces Herodias to leave his half brother Philip and run away with him and be his bride. Then he sends his first wife, his Arabian princess bride away so that he can be with his sister-in-law Herodias. And then to add to all the craziness, the one thing history tells us is that Herodias was actually already part of the family. She was Herod's niece. And that's where she got the name Herodias. This was the family that gave birth to the line of Jerry Springer's episodes (laughs) in... The early 90s. It's like an ancient crazy reality show, right? I don't know how to even keep track of it. Well, it's into that insanity and immorality that John the Baptist enters the picture. He'd been sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. And what was his message? The kingdom of God is at hand, so repent. Change your mind about your sin, yourself, and your Savior, and turn to Jesus as your King. And John the Baptist believes that message is so essential that he believes no one is above that message. As a matter of fact, he makes his way to the palace and stands before King Herod and Herodias and calls the two most powerful people in his nation to repent. He shows up at the steps of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. and says, hey, y'all, you've lost your minds. It's time to repent. I love a guy like this. I don't know about you. Until he shows up at your door. And he says, you all need to repent. Because you are not lawfully wedded. It's a reference to the law of God. Sin is defined by God. So is righteousness. And God has said that this is immoral. And so he he confronts King Herod and Herodias. And how do they respond? Well, they reject John's message of repentance, right? Herod has John arrested and put in prison. Herodias isn't satisfied with that. She wants John put to death. Their hearts are hard to the message of truth. And their actions teach us something. We get a front row seat here to what a hard heart that rejects repentance actually looks like. And and I want you all to know it's a sober warning for us. It's a sober warning not to sit in this room and think about the people who need to hear this message. Like the ones in Washington, 
D.C. This is not just about the people in the White House. It's about the people in our house. What do unrepentant, hard hearts look like? And the question we should be asking our almighty God is, Father, do I have one? So what does unrepentance look like? Well, that's what we see. And that's what I want us to through in the rest of our big idea. We see the message of repentance is rejected. And the first thing we see about these unrepentant people is that unrepentant people love their sin. They love their sin. Herod and Herodias, just plain and simple, love their sinful way of life so much they're unwilling to give it up. They'll come to all different types of theories and excuses in order to not give up their sin. They perfectly represent what John 3.19 says. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The thing in our heart that is broken is that we love all the wrong things in all the wrong ways. We love darkness rather than light and we reject Jesus when we love our sin more than our Savior. Notice how their sin-loving hearts behave. Unrepentant people love their sin so much they're, they're willing to blame others for it. Verse 19 says this, Herodias had a grudge against John. You see the truth here? When an unrepentant heart is confronted over sin, rather than repenting, an unrepentant heart blames the person who calls them out. It's like their sin is precious to them and they go on the offense and attack anyone they perceive to be attacking their sin. That's why those who preach that what God says is sin is still sin are attacked by our culture. We're blamed for being hateful or bigoted by saying the Bible says such and such. Well, that's always been the way that it is. Unrepentant people love their sin so much they want to protect it by attacking anyone who attacks their sin. Herodias is clearly in the wrong. But instead of agreeing with God that her sin is sin, she blame shifts and she focuses on John, not her sin. He's the source of our problems. And guys, that is the culture and age we are living in. This world perfectly embodies the spirit of Herodias. Rather than taking personal responsibility and acknowledging sin as sin, the people of this age are constantly looking for someone else to blame. It's my parents' fault for the way they weren't perfect parents. It's our government's fault for the way it doesn't have perfect laws. It's our society's fault for having unjust or unfair systems. It's our friends' fault for not having a good influence on our life. On and on the blame game goes. If you have children of any age, you know the blame game well, don't you? When you confront your child for doing something unkind or unloving to their sibling, what is the most likely thing to come out of their mouth? Blame. I only hit him because he stole my toy. I only yelled at her because she was mean to me. I only slammed the door because she pressed my buttons. Guys, the blame game's the oldest game in the book. Literally. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? When Adam was confronted for his sin, what did he do? He blamed Eve. When God turned to Eve and asked about her sin, what did she do? She blamed Satan. Friend, beware the blame game. 
Blaming others for our sin is nothing more than a smokescreen that keeps us from seeing our sin as our greatest problem. Repentance means then we are willing to agree with God that we have sinned. And our world, including us in this room, need to hear that message loud and clear. Our greatest problem is our own sin, not our neighbors, not our leaders, not our politicians, not our world, our sin. Repentance means we don't hide behind the blame game or excuses. The second thing we see about people who love their sin and unrepentance is unrepentant people love their sin so much they're willing to harm others, not just blame them. Look at verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. You see that there? Rather than being willing to acknowledge her own sin, Herodias is willing to kill John the Baptist. And you know, that's not unique to her. Not even in this passage. By the end of the next paragraph, Herod's willing to join the hunt and he actually has John beheaded. Unrepentant hearts love sin so much they are willing to harm others. And guys, here's what we need to know. That's what sin always does. That's not just about Herod and Herodias. That's about all of us. The sin in our lives is never isolated to just our lives. Romans chapter 14 says that no one lives to himself. No man is an island. Our lives affect those around us and our sin has devastating effects on the people in our lives, emotionally, mentally, physically, relationally, spiritually. We affect the people in our lives by our own sin. And that means then a refusal to repent means a commitment to harm the people who are in our life. In various ways, angry parents harm their children. In various ways, disobedient children harm their parents. In various ways, lustful husbands harm their wives. In various ways, manipulative wives harm their husbands. In various ways, greedy bosses harm their employees. In various ways, lazy employees harm their bosses. I could go on and on and on, but every single relational problem in the world today can be traced back to someone's sin. Brothers and sisters, when we are unrepentant then over the sin in our lives, effectively, here's what we're doing. We are choosing to harm the people who are in our lives rather than let go of our own sin. And that's why repentance always includes a willingness to acknowledge the harm we've done to others. And it always includes a willingness to take part in whatever's necessary to see the people we've harmed healed by what we've done. Let me just ask you this. What would it look like if you started to see your sin? Not through the addictive pleasure that it provides in your life, but through the harm that it is doing to everyone in your life. How might God, even this morning, be calling you to turn from your sin by humbly serving the people you've harmed, your family, your children, your friends, your coworkers, whomever it might be, and participating in whatever it would be that would 
add to their healing and not their harming. Unrepentant people love their sins so much they're not only willing to blame others and harm others. Unrepentant people love sin so much they actually are willing to multiply it. Look at verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Stop right there. Because Herod is unwilling to repent, And the blame game has already left the station. Herod begins to double down on his sin. His sin starts to multiply. It's not contained to his unlawful marriage with Herodias. It starts to spill out into other sins. He throws a birthday party for all the important people of his kingdom to show what a great guy he is. And he employs, think about this, his own stepdaughter to be the entertainment. And without going into unnecessary details, in the original language of the Bible, we see that this entertainment, this dance, was actually a lewd, seductive performance. Herod's perversion had multiplied itself. And ultimately, it will become the murder of an innocent man. And friend, that's a warning for all of us as well. Sin operates like that. Until our hearts are humble before Jesus and repentant of our sin, one sin always leads to another. Lust turns into lying. Greed turns into stealing. Pride turns into control. Sin multiplies. And that means sin is not a game. It's not a trivial matter. It is an appetite in our fallen flesh that will never be satisfied until it ultimately consumes every good God-honoring thing in our lives. And that's why the message of Jesus is and always has been, repent, turn, agree with God. This sin is not good for you, which is why God does not want you to continue in it. It doesn't bring glory to him. It doesn't bring good to you or anyone around you. Agree with God. Repent. Turn your back on it. Declare war against it. Fight it. Flee from it. Repent. Unrepentant hearts Love their sin. Then we see the second thing. Unrepentant people not only love their sin, they love themselves. Look at verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now notice this. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Herod makes this hasty, prideful vow to his stepdaughter. And when she comes back, she says she wants the head of John the Baptist. And here's what we find. His heart sinks, right? Verse 26 says that... He's exceedingly sorry. He's exceedingly sorry. 
He was sorry because he said it was something he didn't really want to do, but he wouldn't break his promise, verse 26 says, because it would have made him look bad in front of all of his friends. You know what that's called? Pride. It's called loving yourself rather than Rather than turn from his sin, stop this thing dead in its tracks, he would rather kill an innocent man than look bad in, all, in front of all of his friends. You know what he's doing here? He's loving his image and his reputation more than he's loving the truth. Verse 26 says that though he was exceedingly sorry, he didn't change course. That's because remorse isn't the same as repentance. In his pride, he refused to repent. And turn away from sin. And pride is always the heart behind unrepentance. It's an unwillingness to acknowledge that we are the problem. To admit that we have failed to live up to God's design and desire for our lives. It's an arrogance that sees ourselves as little g-gods who are entitled to do whatever we want. Get whatever we want. And it's a one-way ticket to disaster. Because in their hardness of heart, Herod and Herodias reject the truth about Jesus. They love their sin and themselves in a way that keeps them from loving their Savior and dying. And their sin would spend eternity in hell. It's a story of sobriety and sadness and a warning to all of us. And it is the word of God for us today. And so the question is this, how in the world do we respond to this truth? Well, here's a really good way. Don't be like Herod. As a matter of fact, one of my daughters said, I should just say that. And you probably agree. It would have saved us 30 minutes. Don't be like Herod. The way we respond is the way that Herod and Herodias didn't repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Have a change of mind and agree with God. Very quickly, here are three ways the Bible calls us to repent and have a change of mind and agree with God. Number one, change your mind about your sin. 1 John 1, 7 through 10 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That word confess there simply means agree. Agree with God. Agree with God that you have sinned and your sin has separated you from fellowship with God and the people in your life. Claim God's promise of forgiveness through Jesus and ask him to help you declare an honest war on the sin that is present in your life. Ask him to help you identify patterns of sin that are blind spots in your heart and life and are a consistent struggle for you and be willing to let go of that sin and the blame and the excuses. Confess your sin. Change your mind about it. Repent. Number two, change your mind about yourself. Ephesians chapter two, verses one and two says this, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which 
you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Change your mind about yourself by acknowledging that you are dead in your own sin. And there's nothing that you can do about it by your own power. Acknowledge that you have followed after the course of this world and the enemy of God. Acknowledge that you are your own worst enemy and your own sin is your greatest problem. Change your mind about yourself. Reject pride and bow in humility before Jesus as your Lord. And that brings me to the third thing. Change your mind about your sin, about yourself, and change your mind about your Savior. John chapter 15 verse 5 says this. Jesus is speaking and says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is, is, it is that bears much fruit. Look at this. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Change your mind about yourself and acknowledge that you can do nothing apart from the power of Jesus in you. You're no match against your sin. You're no match against your flesh. You're no match against your enemy. That's why you need Jesus. But you don't just need Jesus, friend. You have him. If you're willing to bow in humble faith and repentance before Jesus as Lord, you don't just need him, you have him because God has so loved the world including you, that he gave his son, Jesus. Jesus came to live the life you failed to live in your sin, a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Jesus died a death that you and I deserve to die as a payment for our sin at the cross. And Jesus rose again from the dead so that he could raise you up to a brand new life, a life that's liberated from the penalty and the power of sin. Friend, don't just believe that you are a great sinner. Sinner, believe that Jesus is a mighty Savior. Change your mind about your Savior. Don't just repent, rejoice. Because Christ the Lord is risen today, and you aren't doomed to Herod's fate. We don't have to continue in sin, we don't have to be slaves to unrepentant hearts. Jesus promises us in the gospel to bring new life and the fruit of good works to anyone and everyone who will turn to him in humble faith. So don't just repent, rejoice because Jesus Christ is Lord and will raise up everyone who calls on him in humble faith. He will save us in every way we need to be saved. He will restore us to God's good design and he will spare us from the fate of those who have unrepentant hearts when we bow before King Jesus and agree with his gospel. And that is good news. So I say we end on a high note <laughs> and not walk back through that sobering story again but walk into a new story, a story Jesus is willing to write in the life and heart of everyone who is willing to agree with him, who's willing to acknowledge their sin, the brokenness of their self, and the power and 
grace of our Savior, Jesus. May that be you today. Would you bow your heads in prayer? Father, I want to thank you for a church that is committed to studying the scriptures verse by verse, walking through some of the texts that are harder to study, some of the truths that, frankly, few people want to hear. I thank you for this church. Thank you they show up week after week so we could just study your word verse by verse. So, Father, we take your word to be your word for us today. And I pray that we would receive it with humble and repentant hearts. I pray even now for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit on each of us. By your grace, would you expose where our hearts have been hard and sin. Help us, God, by your grace to not think this is a message for someone else. From someone in the White House to someone in the house next door, Lord, spare us from seeing anyone but our own heart in this and the work of our Savior, Jesus. So, Lord, I pray for each and every one of us. For those who've never placed their faith and trust in Jesus, Lord, I pray that this would be the day, that now would be the time, that right now they would call on Jesus, trusting in his work, his perfect death on the cross, his glorious resurrection power to be what makes them right and keeps them right, forgiving their sin and restoring them to the life that only Jesus can provide. And God, I pray you'd help us who are trusting in Jesus but are still susceptible to some places in our hearts that are hardened. God, would you soften us? Soften our hearts that we would be humble and daily repentant before you, staying in agreement with what you say about our sin and about ourselves, and believing with all our heart, rejoicing with all our might about what you say concerning Jesus. May we trust in him and see his power work in us. And may we have a different story, a story of glory to the name of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.